Good morning. Greet you in Jesus' name again this morning. I don't know how people go about deciding what you should speak on when given the opportunity. I don't know what system you use. I'm a person that likes to be somewhat systematic. I like predictability. And so this morning we're going to go to the next chapter after the one I talked about last time. So now we'll see how many of you know which chapter that is. I'll help you out. Turn with me to John 4. I ran across the statistic that was somewhat disheartening to me, but I know it's the case. The statistic said that in any given talk that a person might give, which would certainly include this one this morning, the audience will go away with about 10% of what the person said. So I don't, I don't find that terribly heartening whenever you think about, at least for myself, the time spent preparing something like this and to think that you'll get 10% of it. But I understand that's the case because how many countless times as a speaker stood up here and said, how many of you can tell me what I talked about the last time I was here? And I sat in the, my bench and said, God, forgive me, I just can't remember. And I felt so bad. But, uh, so I don't hold that against you. The reason I say that is to say this. Um, John 4 here is a very familiar account of Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. Very familiar. A lot of stuff a person could talk about here in this particular chapter. I'm not going to look so much at the content of what Jesus said to the woman here, but I would like to look more at the approach that Jesus took in relating to the woman. And I have titled this talk Evangelism 101. And I, and I, and I didn't know whether I should talk about this or not because just a mere, what, six weeks ago or so, um, Brother Tom Todd stood up here and gave us a most excellent um, talk on witnessing. But I figured you only got 10% of that anyway, so certainly we can do it again. It, it probably won't hurt. So we're going we're gonna to go for this. And if there's something, if I had an aim this morning, I would like you to be impressed by Jesus' example of witnessing to this woman and be inspired to action similarly. That's what I hope can be accomplished this morning. Before we look at this um, chapter real closely, I did some, some reading on contemporary evangelism in, uh, in our world today. And it beings we live today, we're contemporary. This is, this is the world we live in. And I found that uh, according to uh, one survey... And, and I'm a person, you have to pardon me for this, I, I like numbers because it puts things in perspective for me. I like to look at percentages. I like to look at, you know, how do people see things? What, can, I, can I get my hands around, um, um, you know, uh, this subject? So, so here's what I found. I thought this was interesting. Um, 85% of, um, of churches have something about missions in their statement of faith. So I, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to look at ours and see, see what our statement of faith says. 
So I did that, and it was, I found we, we, we fall in the 85%. It goes like this. We believe that the church is the body of Christ, composed of all those who, through repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been born again, and were baptized by one spirit into, into one body, and that is it, it is her divinely appointed mission to preach the gospel to every creature, teaching obedience to all his commandments. So there you have it, pretty succinctly put, and I would have to concur with that. So now here, here's where things kind of get interesting. So, well, just to back up a bit, one does have to wonder what the other 15% have in their mission statement. What's it all about? If it's not about being here to give God's good news to others, what would you be here for? That would be a question I would have, but that's beside the point. So of, of these churches, of these people in this survey, this is the percentage that one asked, we are actively involved in evangelistic effort. 5%. How about the church budgeting for um, evangelism? Well, the number's not real encouraging. 2%. 2% of the church budget. How many people feel gifted and able? 2%. 2% feel gifted and able. I don't know what you think about those numbers. Um, if there's one thing that did encourage me, when you compare the 5% to the 2%, at least there's 3% of people that say, I don't care how I feel, I'm going to do it anyway. I thought that was somewhat encouraging. When asked in this particular survey, 55% of Christians said, we have shared our faith with somebody in the past year. 55% in the past year. Um, question further, how did you share your faith? Well, some said we did it by our lifestyle. Well, that's, that's probably going to be a part of it. Some said they prayed. Some said they approached a person in conversation. Some folks said that we confronted a person about their moral life. Others said they did it through literature distribution. And a small percentage said they did some street preaching. I don't know if that helps, but I thought that was interesting. How about reasons people don't share their faith? This was another interesting um, part of this little article. And I'd be, I'd be curious to know if you find yourself fitting into one of these categories. I could, I could somewhat relate to some of these, um, some of these reasons slash excuses that were given. Why don't you share your faith? Well, some said we don't like confrontation. Well, I don't really care for that either, I have to admit. Um, some said it was the fear of rejection. Others said they were embarrassed sure how, how good of an excuse that is. Others said that I feel out of my comfort zone. Others don't like conflict. Still others said I have a lack of knowledge. I don't know how to do it. Others said I'm not grounded in the word. I'm not sure how to handle the objections. Others said I just, I just don't have any enthusiasm for it. It's just not, it's not my deal. 
Others were honest enough to say, I don't care. I just don't care. And still others said, I don't have time. I don't have time to do this. I'll let you decide whether any of those excuses or reasons are legitimate. Um, I, I think we would all concur that um, we probably can relate to working through some of these, some of these different things. There's one thing that I would, um, I would just throw in right now, I think. If there's one advantage that you and I have whenever we talk to somebody or we relate to somebody about, on a, on a spiritual level, uh, witnessing, if you will, you know, when I go out to sell something or Ellis goes to sell something in his store or those of us that are involved in something, um, when I go out to do this, I, I, have to, I have to persuade you that what I have to offer you would be in your best interest. And I, and I hope I'm, I'm able to do that. And hopefully I can do that honestly, too. Um, however, when I witness to a person, there's a third party comes in here that we often forget about, and that person is the Holy Ghost. That, that Holy Ghost is working in that person you're talking to, the Holy Ghost is working in you, and we have a force there that even can take our faltering attempts, I believe, and turn that into something that just might be what that person needs to hear today. And, and let's never forget that. Another question I would have is, uh, after looking at some of these numbers and crunching them a bit, the question has to be asked, are all Christians called to evangelize? Are all Christians called to witness? Is that part of the job description? Is that yes or no? Well, I would, I would venture to say the answer is yes and no. And I, and I will qualify that, and I'll see if you agree with me. If you don't, I'd be, I'd be very interested in, in, in hearing your perspective on it. I would just point you to Ephesians 4.11 where there Paul talks to the Ephesians, and, and he's saying, he's talking about the gifts in the church, different people's gifts, and he would point out that there are some folks that perhaps have a better ability to do these, these things than others. He says, God has called some of us to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, and he said, we, we, we work together and we all fill our role, and it's a good thing. I would just point out to you there that I would believe that some of us have a better gift in that area than others. I, 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 maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and I, and, and I, would really, I would really like to hear your input on that, but I would say that some of us are perhaps more gifted. However, I would quickly point you to other scriptures, that, uh, such as 1 Peter 3, that says everyone should be ready to give an answer to those who ask, he also shares that our good conduct will be used to shame the false accusers. I think that's important. Really, you can't get out of it. Just by default, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to get into this area, this realm, at some point. Uh, Matthew 5, Jesus talks about his uh, believers being salt and light. Very, very familiar scripture. Uh, Matthew 28, again, very familiar there, where Jesus gives what we have come to know as the Great Commission. Again, I don't think anybody's really exempt from this. Um, this, is, this is part of being a Christian. And really, why would we not want to? Why wouldn't we? Is there any reason we wouldn't want to do this? Share the good news with others. Psalm 107.2 has an interesting little phrase. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Well, you've experienced God's mercy as he talks about in verse 1 
Why would we not want to say so? Why would we? I'm also challenged. Um, whenever I read history, Christian history, I, I just never cease to be amazed and challenged and humbled, I guess, at the zeal of many Christians through the ages. Um, you, you, you pick the, the period of time you want to talk about, and most every time you can come by a, a group of people that were zealously serving God, and part of their zeal was witnessing, powerful witnessing. You know, think of the Moravian Brethren. Think of the Waldensians. These people that we read about, we know about. Think about our own um, Anabaptist history and the um, and the zeal that these folks had. I'm going to read you just just real quick an excerpt from the writings of Menna Simons that that where Menno puts this quite succinctly it goes like this. We would teach, proclaim, and imprint on the hearts of all mankind to the best of our ability this manifold grace of his great love toward us that they may enjoy with us the same joy and renewal of spirit and know and taste with all saints how sweet, good, and kind the Lord is to those who have turned. We preach, therefore, as much as is in our power, both day and night, in houses, and in open air, in forests, and in wilderness, hither and thither, in this and in in this and in foreign lands, in prisons and dungeons, and fire and water, on the scaffold and on the wheel, before lords and princes, orally and by writings, at the risk of possessions and life, blood and death. And I'm going to stop reading there, but he, he goes on. I, I thought about that a bit, and um, I thought, you know, I wonder, I wonder why, um, you know, I, I did introspection. I wonder what... What, um, what could possibly dampen my zeal for this? And perhaps yours as well. I don't know where you, you feel you fit into this thing and how, how inspired you are to do these types of things. Um, but I would, just, I would just point out, and, and Menno mentions it there in, his, uh, in that little excerpt that I read. Um, what say if, uh, if today sitting here in this church that uh, you and I did not know when we got home whether we'd have a house or not, or whether that thing would have been confiscated from us and somebody sitting there in our yard ready to take us when we get home. What if that was our, what if that was our uh, reality? Would the, would the things of this earth maybe grow a little bit more strangely dim to us? Do you think that would be a possibility? You know, we live in such a... Such, um, uh, a, a time that's so unique to Christian history that um, we we have the ability even to become preoccupied with this with Earth and its earthly things. Um, there's so many Christians in the past that didn't even have that opportunity because they knew when they when they chose to to uh, follow Christ that that. They had to lay down their earthly things. They they knew that, and, man, and many did, right up to their lives. So perhaps that is that is some of what um, we have another we have another place to put our zeal, if you want to say that. Perhaps that's what it is, and there's other things perhaps too. But um, perhaps our 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 perception of the country we live in. Um, I, I don't want to go there too far because that's not my subject this morning, but. Um, I think our perception is um, is somewhat skewed 
um, and the, the need of the people out there. I want to just say this, um, and I'm sure you have found it the same way, but the vacuum in the land we live in today of biblical knowledge is absolutely stunningly huge. Um, I guess I just, I over and over am amazed at the absolute uh, lack of knowledge. Yeah, I don't know how else to say it. From people that would even, I would even think of as being um, perhaps at least professing Christians, just don't know much. Just don't know much. And so the, the opportunity for us to share is, is great. Well, let's read John 4 here. And let's learn from some lessons from Jesus and how he related to this woman. When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I give him shall never thirst again. But the water that I give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband, come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast said well, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. And that sayest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. And we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, that the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that, Ma that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seeketh thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, 
and went away into the city and saith unto the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said his disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say ye not, There are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and behold, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. He that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto, eternal, unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereupon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, and testified, He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Okay, I'm going to stop reading there, and we're going to um, commence to look at... Um, Principles of sharing our faith that we can learn here from Jesus' conversation with this woman. Um, I don't think I need to go into the details of Samaria and the, um, the absolute tension that existed between the people of Judah, which was south of Samaria, and the people of Samaria. Um, I would assume you're familiar with that tension. I did a quite extensive study on that. And I found that um, actually that that distaste worked both ways. You know, oftentimes we think of, you know, pity poor Samaritans. You know, they were you know kind of outcast, whatever. But I tell you what, they left. They lost no love the other way either. There was there was a, a huge distaste both ways for uh, for each other. But and to start out here, it talks about how the Lord had to uh, go to Galilee, and if you remember, that's north of Samaria. And so it said he had to go through Samaria. Well, the truth of it is, if he'd have been every, any other Jew on that day, he would have just crossed over the, um, the Jordan. He'd have took the uh, turnpike on the other side and went up and dodged into Galilee. He would have not gone through Samaria because there was just, there was no way you would taint yourself by doing that. But he, he chose to do that. And I do have to wonder if his disciples um, raised their eyebrows at all when he did that. Uh, I, I tend to think that they did. But they went with them. So, let's look at some principles here. The first one I have, I get from verses 1 to 3. The purpose of sharing our faith is to save souls and not to build egos. You say, well, no. where do you get that? Well, it says here that um, I believe Jesus could have stayed down there in Judea where he was, and he could have continued uh, amassing a crowd of people to him. It would sound like this was no problem making disciples. He had already outpaced John, and his popularity was growing. Why not stay and build on that thing? Um, there's many reasons that he chose not to do that, I'm convinced. But the thing I want to drive home to you is, Jesus, through his foreknowledge, I am sure knew 
that he was going to run into this, this woman at the well. You and I don't have that foreknowledge. I grant you that. But um, he was not concerned about building an ego. That was not his concern. He was concerned about that lonely woman at that well that he was going to meet not too far hence. Remember this. Soul winning is not a numbers game. It's, it, that's not what it's about. It's about uh, you and I doing our job to witness to the people that God puts in our path. Numbers do not matter. Um, we can get a little um, odd with numbers. Um, I, I had a, a friend of mine that goes to a church here in the area that if I said the name, you would know exactly which one it is. I'm not going to do that. It's a huge, huge church. And uh, we were comparing numbers one day. He said, how many people go to your church? I told him. He told me how many people go to his church. And he just dropped this. He said, if your church is not growing, something's wrong. Well, it's growing now, I have to admit. It's, you know, I, I, if I had the conversation now, I could tell him, well, we're thinking about building a new church. Well, not really. But, um, you know, and, and I don't want to poo-poo that too much, and I do not want to pass any judgment. But I just, wanna, I just want to point you here to Jesus. Jesus could have built a large congregation down there, and he chose not to. We'll leave that. The second point I want to point out to you is, I find in verse 7. Here he is in, in, um, in Samaria, and this woman comes to draw water. And Jesus says to this woman, give me something to drink. Jesus here was willing to buck the system. Now, according to the system here, pretty much everything Jesus did here would have made him ceremonially unclean. Um, we already talked about it. Good Jews don't talk to Samaritans. That's not what they do. Uh, they don't ask Samaritans for things. Um, rabbis, in particular, of that day, did not talk to women. That may not all be a bad thing. I, I have a feeling that probably the, the principle was good, but it probably was taken to an extreme. Um, Jesus chose to talk at this, to this woman. Another thing that I... Um, I found out in, in studying through this a bit, I never thought of it before, but according to the clock, it was high noon when this person, this woman, came for her water. And according to um, uh, practices of the land, she should have been coming in the evening. Probably the reason she came at noon was because, or maybe, perhaps, I shouldn't say probably, but perhaps, is because of her, of the life she was living, and she really didn't want to run into people. She was probably scoffed by society. Jesus knew that stuff. He chose to talk to her. Everything he did um, seemed to be stooping low. So I would challenge us: how how low will we stoop to talk to a sinner about Jesus? Will we befriend the chiefs of sinners? Will we treat with dignity people? that are from the south side of the tracks. Um, I, I, remember, I remember so well a neighbor we had when I was growing up. Very, very dirty, you know, kind of a leftover tramp sort of a guy. And um, I remember well that uh, the, the, the Christian people in that neighborhood to their, um, I would, what should I say? Um, I, I, would like to, I would like to say this. They treated him very well for who he was. And I always appreciated that. I don't think Melvin ever had to wonder, 
if the Christians in that particular neighborhood accepted it, because I think they did. And I could tell you stories of why I think that. I won't do that, but let's treat people well. This is an observation, and I'd be curious to know if you would concur with this, but it seems to me that people that are attracted sometimes to true Christianity are indeed the people that fit in sideways to the rest of society. And the reason that is, in my opinion, is that they have been rejected from current society. They're looking for people that will accept them. Let's not disappoint those people. Point number three. Jesus knew how to steer the conversation in a spiritual direction. Verse 10. Um... He's talking about getting his drink, and then he right away talks about, he steers it, talks about living water that he would be willing to share with her, offer her. Do you and I know how to steer conversations in a spiritual direction? I'm sure we do. And I want to encourage us that the opportunities to do that abound if we'll take the time to do it. Um, So many opportunities. Um, Over the Christmas season, I think that the opportunities really abound. Um, when, when folks have maybe a, a relative die or on and on uh, I found that over the, um, the time of um, the Twin Towers being uh, destroyed the, the Amish schoolhouse shooting back in what was it 06 or so um, these things just, just gave an absolute great opportunity to engage people in discussion about you know hey what, what's going on what what um, how do we relate to this? How do we see this? And, and on and on. And so let's, let's, be, let's be looking for those opportunities. They're out there if we'll just look and we'll take advantage of them. Number four, offer people real hope that will endure. Jesus did this in verse 13 and 14. Again, he's talking about um, this water that he can offer. And he says, uh, the last part of 14, he says, I can give you a well of water that will spring up into everlasting life. You know, there's a blessing to meeting people's physical needs. There is. It's, it's a blessing to do that. And uh, I believe that's, that is very much a part of a Christian's um, job description as well, if you want to say that. However, I've been encouraged in my small amount of time working with uh, Christian Aid's Rapid Response Program um, program. That's what we're primary, primarily there doing, I guess you could say, is helping people clean up the mess and, um, and so on. But it's been stressed over and over to us um, through different venues and, and people that take the time, take the time to talk to people about their spiritual need. And what an opportunity. And the different, the few times that I've worked on these disasters, the opportunity is just abound. And it's, it's so refreshing and rewarding to talk to these people and offer them something beyond a clean basement, um, something that is desirable, something that's genuine, something that's perpetually satisfying. And then, if they choose to accept that in some time in the future, they're going to have a life that is abundant, bubbles over Point number five, let's learn to tailor our conversations to fit the the need of the hour. Jesus here 
uh, seems to somewhat change the subject quite quickly. And maybe we don't have all the, the conversation. We probably don't. But he goes, hey, go call your husband. Um, now, Jesus, again, had an advantage that he knew everything. He knew this woman's heart. He knew that this woman had real issues with her, with her marital relationship. I mean, going through five husbands, even in our immoral age, is quite a deal. Um, that's, that's, that's a lot of husbands. Jesus knew this woman had a big issue, and he knew, it, he knew exactly what the issue was, and he spoke to that issue. He didn't talk to this woman about, well, you name it, some other issue. It was about her issue here with her problem with um, maintaining husbands, I guess. You know, it was, a, it was a real problem she had. Since you and I don't know the hearts of people, you and I are going to have to learn to know people. That, that's what we're going to have to do. Sooner or later, I'm sure if we would have befriended this woman, we would have found out she had five husbands. And we could have perhaps helped her through that, that huge need in her life. But I just would encourage us, let's be willing to help people with their specific needs. I think, I think the thing that I, I, I get from this whole conversation Jesus had here with this woman is how personable it was. He was talking to her. And I think that was, that's great. And I think, I think we have the opportunity to do that so many times. Point number six, be careful not to argue over peripheral and insignificant things. You realize what this woman wanted to do as soon as Jesus starts talking about her husband problem? He goes, oh, I think you're a prophet. And by the way, where should I worship? You know, my, my, my ancestors say this mountain. Your ancestors say down in Jerusalem. Let's talk about this. Well, Jesus very wisely um, just avoids that. And he goes, what you don't know is the day's coming that that doesn't make any difference. Now, it's not real likely that you and I will get into a conversation about where to worship. And especially, I mean, you know, I'm just taking this as an example here. But what this was was a peripheral and an insignificant thing. Jesus knew that. And when you think about it, uh, from what I gathered, Jesus actually could have articulated a conversation right around this subject. Um, Mount Gerizim here that this woman was referring to was indeed, once upon a time, a place where the Samaritan people gathered to worship and still did, although at this point in time, the temple that was once there was no longer there. But the reason they ended up worshiping there was because, if you will remember with me, way back in the day, whenever the Jews uh, returned from exile from Babylon and they went over and they started rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple and so on and so forth, remember our, our friend Sanballat that came down and gave him all that hard time? Do you remember where he was from? He was a Samaritan, okay? He was the governor of Samaria. Well, before he gave him a hard time, the offer was there, and this, this shows my ignorance, I guess, but in Ezra, I think it's Ezra 4, I think I had it written down here somewhere, but anyway, you can go back and read it. Their first offer was, we would like to help you build the temple. We would like to help you do that, and um, you know, could we please help? Well, Zerubbabel there said, no. You can't. He flatly refused them. And so they took offense and went home. 
few years later, they built the, um, the temple there on uh, Mount Gerizim, uh, only to be destroyed by one of the Maccabean family in like 128 B.C., all right? So, I mean, again, just tension like crazy. But the, but the, but the fact of the matter was the reasons Zerubbabel did not allow uh, these Samaritans to come down and help rebuild that ten- temple and join in in that worship because these, these Samaritans... Had they they were a very mixed mixed up people mixed religion mixed race. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the priests in, in Ezra's day there married Sanballat's daughter and moved in with Sanballat in Samaria. And um, I would I don't know this for sure, but I, I have a hunch he became part of the of the religious system there in Samaria. So the truth of it is, Zerubbabel in that time told the Samaritans to go home. He said, we, we really can't use your help because of your issues. So really, Jerusalem was the place to worship. That was the correct place. Jesus could have built that conversation and kind of went with that, but he didn't. He just laid that aside. Wasn't going to worry about that peripheral issue. I couldn't help but think about um, about 25 years ago, I was with um, a, a group to New York City course there. I remember, I don't even remember where we were at, but we were there singing at one, at one uh, place, and a particular man there, he decided to, um, to take us to task about wearing our wristwatches on our left arm. Hey, what a silly thing. That, but that, that's what he, he wanted. It seemed like he just had a dig at us. And I, I so well re- remember one brother there in that, in that um, group articulating that conversation in such a way that was so good. And um, getting them off of that kick about, you know, wristwatches wrist, wrist on the left arm. As a matter of fact, that particular brother that day had his on his right arm. So he held it up and said, see here? And it kind of, the conversation kind of flattened. But it was interesting. All right, let's move on. Point number seven. Focus on meaningful change and true heart worship. Jesus says um, the hour is coming that... Um, you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Verse 24. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. A decision for Christ, I believe, is only as valid as the changed life that it produces. Jesus knew that. And Jesus knew that he had to get this woman to a place where her spirit was connected with God and that she was willing to worship God in truth. That's a subject all by itself, and I'm not going to linger long here, but I would just point you to this. Um, There's a lot of Christianity in this world today that's a lot like fruit juice that you can buy at the store. Have you ever looked at the label on what sometimes is called real fruit juice? About 3%. The rest of it's fluff and stuff. I don't know what it is, but it's not real fruit juice. Let's point people to real fruit juice Christianity. Point number eight, be dedicated. Verse 31 and 32, Jesus forgot he was hungry. Now remember, he's sitting at the well because the disciples went into to the um, town to get food. He, he has to be hungry. He has to be. I got to believe that they started out probably relatively early. They're hungry. Jesus forgot he was hungry. 
And whenever his disciples come back and they try to coax him to eat, he, he, he says, I, I, have, I have things to go on that you don't know anything about. That humbles me. I don't know what it does for you, but is my burden for souls so great that I would forget about my belly growling? Point number nine. Don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Now I'm going to turn a bit towards Jesus' instruction to uh, his disciples here, starting about verse 34. Jesus said, you know, he said, uh, don't say in your minds that you have four months. In other words, what he's saying here is your opportunity to win a soul for Jesus is so much different than what you're used to when it comes to planting and harvesting. When you plant something, you have to wait four months till you can harvest that thing. He said, in this particular situation, while there are some similarities between sowing the seed and reaping the harvest, he said, just remember, you don't have four months. A harvest is always imminent. It's always there in front of your eyes. He said, if you would just open your eyes and look, the harvest is there. It seems like that it's been a, a problem through the ages um, of an understaffed harvest field. Matthew 10, Jesus talks of this. He said, my house is full, but my field seems to be empty. He said, pray that the Lord of harvest would send forth reapers. Remember, you and I may only get one opportunity to, uh, to share with people. The other ironic thing is, um, what farmer would look out into his field when it's ready for harvest and say, you know what, don't feel like today. Next day, you look out again, don't feel like it again today. It's there, it's getting ripe, it's getting riper, and he just don't feel like harvesting. We'd say, what a shame. What, what's wrong with this man? How often will we lay the spiritual aside to harvest the physical, but we can't seem to make that connection with the spiritual? Somehow we have to understand that when the harvest is ready, we've got to get it. There may only be one opportunity. Point number 10. Don't become concerned about who gets the credit. Um, Jesus points out in verse 38, he said, um, I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor, another man labored, you entered into the labors. Um, I don't know that that's a huge problem, but I think sometimes we get, um, we get a bit um, disheartened, I would, you, you might say, because of the slowness of the, pro of the process. I mean, how often do you hear of a person that knows nothing, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, just a, a prime sinner, that through one witness, he comes to Christ. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. That does happen sometimes, but not very often. Many times, you'll drop a line. Maybe a year later, somebody else drops a line. And maybe after a series of events that God puts in his way, the person will come, understand his, his need of God, and accept a Savior. Don't worry about who gets the credit. God can take care of that. Soul winning must be a concerted effort. And we don't need to know how that works. Um, let's just do our part. 
Point number 11, and this is maybe closely related, but um, don't let earthly goals get in the way of helping others. If you look at verses 40 and 41, um, remember now, Jesus stopped here because he's on his little travel to uh, Galilee. But it says that he tarried two days. Two days he was waylaid to talk to more Samaritans about their need to teach them. He was very flexible. Be flexible. Don't let the earthly goal of getting to Galilee stop you from the much higher calling of witnessing to people that need help. Last point I have, never underestimate what God can do. Remember how I told you that Jesus could have stayed in Judea? He could have built that thing up there, those disciples he had that was following him. He could have, he could have focused on that. And, and I don't know that that would have been wrong. I don't know that. But he didn't. He went into Samaria. He ran into the woman. And then what happens? It says in verse 41 that many more believe because of his own word. Again, he... he he followed uh, the, the path that God wanted him to go, and he was rewarded. And, and um, the disciples, I think, were taught a lesson that, you know what, there's people here. Many believed. God worked a great work there in that particular city. And it wasn't just because of, um, of one particular thing. It was Jesus, his conversation, the woman being willing to go down and talk to her fellow villagers, and so on and so forth. And remember, these people are still Samaritans. Nothing's changed here. These people are still Samaritans that God could save. We're willing to listen to the message. Well, in closing, I had to think of uh, two verses as I was reading over this. Two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. In Romans 10.15, Paul says, and he quotes the Old Testament here, but he, he quotes it in the New. He says, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring good tidings of good things. All right? So, if you want beautiful feet, you know how to get it. Preach the good tidings of good things. Daniel 12.3 has another interesting uh, word picture. He says, Those who lead many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever. Now we hear a lot about stars today. We hear about superstars and rock stars and this star and that star. But if you want to be a real star, if you want to be a real star, find that woman at the well and talk to her or him, whatever the case may be. If that person, if you lead him to righteousness, you will shine as the stars. I want to be a part of that galaxy, and I trust you do too.